John's Gospel, chapter 12 this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are going to be men that are walking up the aisle right now that have a Bible. They'd be happy to supply it to you if you just raise your hand and they'll get one to you. We want everyone to not only hear the Word of God, but also to be able to see it with their own eyes. Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and we find ourselves in what is really a devotional favorite of so many who know and love the Lord. John chapter 12 verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to turn someplace in this world, to be able to turn to your book, Lord, and to be able to read truth to read truth and reality that will outlive all of the heavens and the earth around us. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to build our lives today upon your truth, to be able to build our eternities upon your truth, Lord. Thank you for your living and holy and wise word that we get to study this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus tells us how to really, really get to know Him. Not merely about Him, but how to get to really, really know Him deeply and personally. The event occurs just days before Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem, at a time of the Jewish feast of Passover. And we're told that certain Greeks were present at the feast, and I think a person might wonder why in the world would a bunch of Gentiles be in the city of Jerusalem at the time of a Jewish feast of Passover? What interest could they have in that at all? These Greeks were probably known, uh, probably were what was known in those days as God-fears. There were many Gentiles in those days, and a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. Many Gentiles in those days who were involved in a, a sincere search for God, a search for the meaning and the purpose of God, a search to know God. And they had come to reject the gods, uh, the Roman and Greek gods that much of the culture worshipped around them. And the Greek gods and then the gods that followed them, the gods of the Romans, were essentially the deification of human flesh. The deification of man, only now we get to worship ourselves and uh, the aspects of our flesh and the worship of some idol or some god. It was the deification of lust. It was the deification of pride. It was the deification uh, of all of the emotions of man, all of the desires of the human flesh. And when they looked at that and they realized that in looking at these gods, this is basically the deification of man, and I realized that man is the problem. I am the problem. I am not satisfied in life and will not be satisfied by going deeper into the base things of my own life. I'm looking for something different. And when they learned about the Jewish God, the Jewish God was attractive to them on a couple of levels. Number one, there was only one. 
And they had so many Roman gods and Greek gods, you couldn't keep track of them, and half of them were fighting with one another at any given point in time. And you never knew how to please one without displeasing the other. It was an awful lot to keep track of. And in the Jewish religion, there was one God. That's easier to keep track of. The second thing that appealed to them about the Jewish God was His holiness. When they came to Yahweh or to Jehovah or the Lord of the Old Testament, they recognized this is a holy God. This is a God who stands for holiness. This is a God who makes His people holy. And when you come out of a religious system or you come out of secular humanism, you come out of just worshiping yourself out in that world, and, and all of the degradation that comes from that, and you come face to face with the God of the Bible and the fact that this God is holy, this God is different than us in ways that are wonderful, you are not put off by the holiness of God. The holiness of God is very attractive to that kind of person. And he was attractive to these uh, Gentile uh, seekers, to these Greeks. So these lovers of the Lord were in Jerusalem seeking to worship and honor the Lord. One of the things about these God-fears is that they worshipped the God of the Jews, they worshipped the Lord, they attended the Jewish synagogue and all of these things, but they stopped short of becoming proselytes, uh, which involves circumcision. So they wouldn't go that far, so they, they remained simply God-fears. Uh, so they're in Jerusalem they love the Lord, they're seeking to worship the Lord and to honor the Lord. Now notice their request there in verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now that request reveals to us the fact that they knew about him. The knowledge of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, had not only spread far and wide among the Jews, his reputation and, and knowledge of all of these things also spread far and wide among the Gentile population of, of the world. And so these men are curious about Jesus. What are they asking? They're not asking to merely see Jesus or to get a glimpse of him. Hey, Philip, could you get a quick, you know, photo shot with us? Have you ever, um, well, I won't go into that. It's a poor illustration. It takes much time. But uh, they're not looking to say, hey, listen, could you get us close enough to Jesus and we could all just get around him, put our arms around him and, and get a quick picture and then we go back to Greece or back to northern Galilee or go back to some other kind of a, of a place. We can show everyone the picture that when we were over in Jerusalem uh, that we saw this Jesus. So the rest of our lives, that would be our claim to fame. But can I show you my picture of Jesus? No, Grandpa, we've already seen you in the picture of Jesus a thousand times. The original language, the word see here, carries the idea of to know, to consider, to perceive, to understand. They're not merely wanting a glimpse of Jesus they're wanting to get to know Him. They want to understand Him. When someone calls the church office, maybe during the week, and they declare, I want to come in and see Pastor Damien, we know full well that they are not wanting to come into the office, make an appointment with, with me, so they can sit and just stare at me. They want to get to know me. They want to understand how... I see their particular situation in the light of the Scriptures. Notice that they approach Philip with their request. Philip was one of the apostles. And probably one of the reasons that they approached Philip with their request is because Philip is a Gentile name. He is one of only two of the twelve that had a name that was a Gentile name. They might have known that he was from Galilee, which was a Gentile area of, of Israel. And so they figured, all right, he's got a Gentile name. He's a Jew, but all the other disciples are Jewish with Jewish names. And so maybe we got our best hope of success by approaching him. They're looking at any kind of an angle angle to get an audience with Jesus. One sure reason 
that they approached Philip was because somehow they knew Philip to be a man who knew Jesus. They knew him to be a person who had a personal relationship with Jesus. Evidently, they didn't feel comfortable enough to just approach Jesus on their own. They felt we better approach him through someone who knows him. You and I have no hope of, on our own, gaining an audience with the President of the United States. You just can't walk into the White House and go chat with him. You have to know somebody. And you need to know somebody that knows him personally, or you have no chance of of getting an audience uh, with him. And so they recognized that Philip had that kind of relationship with Jesus. He had access to Jesus. He knew Jesus personally. And this is one of the reasons that it is important for others to know about each of us as Christians that we are Christians, that we have a personal relationship with Him. So that when the day comes that someone has a question about Him in our neighborhood or in our workplace or in our school or wherever it might be, that they know that we are someone that they can come to in order to get to know Him or to learn more about Him. For this reason, everyone should know that we are Christians. Anyone that's known us any length of time should know we are followers of Jesus Christ. No one should have to guess whether that thing is, that is true. I remember when being a new Christian and I was working with the phone company as a lineman at the time and I, I witnessed and I shared Christ with everybody that I worked with. And uh, not on company time, but we had a lot of driving time on that job. And we also would be way out in the boonies eating lunch and stuff. And I never forced myself on people, but I'll open up the subject. And I want all of them to know about, about Christ. And uh, so you witness with everybody and... and uh, most everyone thought I'd gone off the deep end. Same thing with you. You know, he's gone crazy. This will never last. But a change had occurred in, in my life. And so I ended up being avoided at work on, to some degree. And, and uh, again, not because I cornered people and forced myself on them, but listen, I wasn't the funnest or funniest person to be around, you know, in, anymore. My life was about, about the Lord and letting people know about that. But it was funny as time went on, as months and years went by, it was funny that when someone would hit a crisis in their life or they'd want to know more about Jesus, they'd seek me out privately to ask me questions. I'll tell you something, for how God has made me, that makes all of the rejection in the world worth it. That they would know that I am someone that they could come to and ask some questions concerning Christ to see Him better, to know Him better, to understand Him better. And when we're introduced, I think, to new people in life, I think it's very good, very early in the relationship to let them know of our love for the Lord and uh, that, that will open up as an opportunity. You won't have to force it so they can know that we are somebody they can turn to in their questions concerning Jesus in, in life. Now, Philip didn't know what to do with the request, and so he consulted with Andrew, who was famous for bringing people to Jesus. And so they both approached Jesus related to this request. And notice Jesus' answer to their request there in verses 23 through 26. I remember the first time I read this passage... And actually, the first few times that I read this passage, they come with this request, and listen, you've got some Gentiles, Jesus, here, who are wanting to see you. They're wanting to get to know you. And as I would read Jesus' response to this thing that they brought to him, it, seems, it almost seems as if Jesus had completely ignored their question. And he said, I can't be bothered with that. I've got some other things on my mind. And he just begins to lay out a bunch of things that are on, on his heart. And the whole thing is completely disconnected. doesn't have anything to do with their requests. But that's not what's happening there. You notice that we're told in the, uh, in the passage that he, in his response in those verses, verse 23, but Jesus answered them. 
And what he says immediately following here in verses 23 to 26 is his answer, not only to those Greeks, but his answer to anyone here today on how can a person come to know and understand Jesus. And he answers the question more completely than than we would realize. The disciples had to figure that they bring this request to Jesus and it's just going to be a thumbs up or a thumb down. Do you want us to bring these guys in and kind of put a tent over here or a room and they can come in and see you for a little while now? Out they go that that would be kind of the extent of what a yes would look like or do we shoo them away? Instead, what Jesus does here is he reveals to all of us how to really come to know him and to understand him. You notice in the verse 23 or verse 24, his answer begins most assuredly in the new King James. Don't care for it as much as the old King James, which says, verily, verily. If I had been translating the new King James version of the Bible, it wouldn't have sold a copy. But that's another story. I'd have endeavored to leave the verily, verily in on it. Jesus didn't say verily, verily, very often in his teaching, or most assuredly. And when he did, he is telling people, heads up on this. Everything that he says is important and deserves our absolute undivided attention. But when he says verily, verily, he is saying, here is something that is vital that you understand. Vital that you don't misunderstand it. And so everyone needs to give this their utmost attention so they don't miss us and miss what he's saying. And again, Jesus tells us how to really, really get to know him. Not merely about him, but how to get to know him deeply and personally. And he lists five things. Well, maybe we will go 14 hours. Just kidding. You know me. Yeah. Such peace settled upon your heart. Number one, a person, Jesus said in verses 23 and 24, a person can come, can only come to truly know and understand Jesus by understanding the implications of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, because that's what he's talking about in verse 24. In verse 24, he likens himself and his death upon the cross to a grain of wheat, a seed that falls into the ground and dies. Now picture in your mind, take a grain of wheat and put it in the palm of your hand. Just picture it there in the palm of your hand. If I were to ask you to look at that seed of wheat and, and ask you if you could see the grain of wheat, you would say, of course I can see it. It's a little seed right here in the palm of my hand. But take that seed and plant it in the ground. Bury it. And then watch it die there. And then watch the green blade begin to shoot through the soil. Watch as it grows straight and tall. And then watch as it forms a head of wheat, ripe and golden. And then you realize that while you thought you could know all that there was to know about a grain of wheat by merely looking at it, you realize that you didn't know anything about it until it was buried, it died, was buried, and rose again. And only then were you able to see all that was bound up in that single grain of wheat. And in the same way, it is only in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we can truly come to know Him and understand Him. It is only through His death, burial, and resurrection that we can ever fully know who He is. It is only through His death, His burial, and His resurrection that we can understand what He came into the world to do, His single great mission, which was and is to provide mankind with salvation 
and the forgiveness of our sins. Earlier in Jesus' public ministry, he was with the disciples in the city of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked the disciples, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What are the opinions of me out there that you're hearing? They proceeded to rattle off all the different opinions that people had of him concerning who he was and what he was. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. They see you as a great social and moral reformer who has come to call mankind to repent and to change. They said, some see you as Elijah, the great miracle worker of the Old Testament. Others say that you're Jeremiah, the great weeping prophet of the Old Testament. They see you supremely as a man of love and compassion, as an example of that. Still others see you as one from a long line of the prophets that were sent by God to the nation of Israel. They view you as a great teacher. They view you as a great spokesperson for God. Now, if I asked anybody, what are people saying about me out there? They came back with those four things or any one of those four. I'd say, what else have they noticed about me? (laughs) That's pretty flattering. That's a very flattering assessment. And Jesus allowed him to finish, and then he posed the second question to them. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke for the whole twelve, and he said, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You are the promised Jewish Messiah of the Old Testament, and you are God in human flesh. If Peter's assessment of Jesus was overstated or incorrect, Jesus would have rebuked him immediately. Peter, come on, get a hold of yourself. This is crazy talk, calling me the Messiah and then calling me the Son of God, ascribing deity uh, to me. You're talking nonsense here. But not only did Jesus not rebuke Peter, he commended him for his assessment of Jesus, and he declared that the revelation had no less authority than coming from his Father in heaven. Jesus affirmed the truthfulness of the assessment. What's the point? The point is this. If you think of Jesus as being anything less than the promised Jewish Messiah and the Son of God, that is, God in human flesh, you don't know Him at all because you have not examined Him in the light of His death, His burial and his resurrection for his death his burial and his resurrection reveals him to be the savior of the world the one through whom God has provided a way of salvation and forgiveness to sinful man if you don't view him supremely as the son of God come from heaven in order to save us from our sins You don't know him at all. If your assessment of Jesus is that he was supremely a good teacher, he was a great moral reformer, he was a great spokesperson for God, he was a great miracle worker, he was a great example of what is good and best in mankind, then I say respectfully but with a force that needs to be said, you don't know him at all because you have not examined the implications of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All of this brings us to our second point. Second, I can only come to know and understand Jesus by then 
making him my personal Savior. Now knowing what he's come into the world to do, accepting his unique qualifications to provide me with forgiveness and salvation, none of that does me any good. That knowledge does me no good unless I act upon it and I make him my personal Lord and Savior. And this is the single most important thing that a person can do if we want to have any hope of knowing and understanding Jesus. One day a group of people came up to Jesus and they asked him, and he said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, speaking of himself. It is possible to know mountains of information about Jesus. It is possible to believe in the fact that He is the Messiah, to believe in every one of His miracles, to believe all of His teaching, to believe in Him as a historical figure, to even believe Him to truly be the Son of God. It is possible to believe all of those things about Him, but unless I trust in Him as my own personal Savior, it won't do me any good. The Gospels are filled with the accounts of Jesus casting demons out of men and women. And as they were cast out of these people, they openly confessed Him as the Messiah. They confessed Him as the Son of God. They had... The demons had a greater understanding of Jesus than the disciples did through much of his ministry. And yet the Bible declares that ultimately in heaven there will not be the presence of a single demon. Knowledge, it, it, knowledge can't save us. It's being born again that saves us. But when a person trusts in Jesus as their Savior, then Jesus enters into our lives the person of the Holy Spirit, and we're born again. And when I turn from my sin and I confess my sin to God, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I trust in the Savior that He sent into the world, and I invite Him to come into my life and make it His, then He will come into my life in the person of the Holy Spirit, and I'm born again by the Holy Spirit. That's what, a, that's what being born again is. It's a spiritual birth. There are so many people today who have been raised in religious environments. Even environments that have claimed to be Christian and yet they know nothing of a personal relationship with Christ. They don't even know that they need to be born again. Even though Jesus declared, unless a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven from his own mouth, completely ignorant of it. I would never want a single person to come here for even a single Sunday and not know that they need to be born again and how to be born again. It's so easy to think, I know so much about him. I was raised around these things. But you know, I have never confessed my sin to him and asked him to be my Savior and my Lord. And if you've never done that, you need to do that this morning. Christianity is a personal relationship with God made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins it is accessed by faith by trusting in him as our savior and everybody needs to know that there's a vast difference between knowing about someone and knowing them personally I like to read biography when I have the opportunity to read. I don't have much time to read, so I'm selective in it. And I've read most biographies by Christian leaders through the, through the centuries that God has used. 
I read a lot of, of secular uh, biography too. I've read biographies on Patton. I've read biographies on Napoleon. I've read biographies on uh, Wellington. Biographies on Spurgeon and Campbell Morgan, though those are spiritual people. I've read uh, biographies on Lord Nelson, Admiral Nelson. I'm kind of an Anglophile, evidently, on some of this stuff. And so I know something about all of these people by virtue of reading these books. But if you were to offer me the choice and say, would you rather know them on the basis of what you've learned from a book or second-hand source, or know them personally, develop a personal relationship with them and have that kind of access, which of the two would you choose? I think all of us know what we would choose. We would choose the relationship. Because there I will learn all that anyone else has learned and more. And God has provided us in His Son the ability to have access to Him on the basis of a personal relationship. And it's there that everything explodes to life in terms of coming to understand Jesus. Paul wrote and he said, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, nor can, they, he, know, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Basically what he's saying there is, until I'm born again, until the Holy Spirit comes into my life, the author of the Bible, and the Bible is the greatest source of revelation related to Jesus, then the Bible is dead to me. But once the Holy Spirit comes into my life, He causes this book to explode to life as a revelation of Jesus, the one I have a relationship with. I remember when I was a kid, I was sick one day, sick in bed. My mom had a friend by the name of Dorothy who really, really, really loved the Lord. She came over the house and she was doing some cleaning or something like that. I'm sick in bed and she came in. I was reading a book. And it was a book full of, it was a, a quotation book, by, uh, famous quotes by Mark Twain. Well, Dorothy never missed an opportunity to turn our eyes upward as children. So she said, oh, you like that book? Yes, I like that book. I like little sayings. That's interesting to me. She said, oh, you know, there's a book in the Bible like that. Really? A book in the Bi it's a book of Proverbs. So she got a Bible and she turned me the book of Proverbs and handed it to me. I liked Mark Twain better. I didn't have the author inside of me. So I'm trying to make my way through these Proverbs. I'm not getting one of them. I'm not understanding any of, of these things. And so I put it down. I went back to Mark Twain. But once the Holy Spirit came into my life, there is not all of the books in the whole world put together that rival. The Bible for enjoyment and what I receive from it. Because now the Holy Spirit is inside of me, opening it up to me. And that's what happens when we're born again. You may sit here today and you may say, listen, I've had friends say, hey, listen, read the Bible or this. And I've tried. I tried. Man, I'm not getting anywhere. This is just, oh, boy. If understanding this book is what it takes to be a Christian, I am out. It'll never happen. I don't get it. When you make Jesus your Savior, and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, now you've got the teacher living inside of you. And the book will come to life for you as you deepen in your relationship with the Lord. Notice number three. Once I am born again, verse 25, I can only come to truly know and understand Jesus as I... Follow him into a life of complete obedience to God's will for my life. Whatever the sacrifice, absolute, unconditional obedience. Because that's the life that Jesus lived. In verse 25, Jesus is basically taking the seed illustration and he is applying it to our lives as his followers. 
We cannot fully know and understand him until we're willing to be like that grain of wheat. First, willing to be planted by God where he wants to plant us. And then two, willing to die where he has planted me in this world. And until, unless the seed dies, what is inside of that seed will never come out. And what is true of a seed is true of a human life. It is only as we die to our own self-will and our own self-purposes and selfishness that what God has planted inside of us will ever come out. Someone can say, wait a second, I mean, what do you mean die? How does a person die and still live? By daily saying no to my selfishness and my self-will in order to say yes to His will for my life. Saying no to my self, my selfishness, my self-will and saying yes to God in every decision in my life. Choosing His will over my own self-will is what the Bible calls a living sacrifice. Paul put it this way, the book of Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, a living sacrifice. Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hey, someone can, you can almost hear someone protest. That's ridiculous. I mean, to, to die to self and all of that kind, that's going to result in the most miserable life imaginable. Jesus disagrees with you on that. Take a seed. Take any seed. Take a, a peach pit. Take an apricot pit. Got an apricot pit right here. Someone ate one this week. They pulled it. It wasn't in their mouth. They pulled it and it popped out. I said, hey, can I have that from you? Sitting right there. Apricot seed. You look at that seed, it looks dead. If, I, if we left it here on the top of this pulpit and we came back 20 years from now, it looked very much like it does right now. Wouldn't, there wouldn't be a single change to it at, at all. But you take that seed... And you plant it in the ground. And as you plant it in the ground, we would discover that there is a tree inside of that seed. And as I hold this seed before you right here this morning, there is a big, beautiful, luscious apricot tree inside of the seed. But you will never know that until you bury it. And what is true of the seed, Jesus said, is true of each of one of our lives. It is only as we bury our lives in His will, as we take our decisions in life and we put them up against God's Word and everywhere He says yes to do something in a certain direction or no to not go in that direction, no matter what my flesh wants to do, is I will obey that Word, I will bury myself and my self-will in that. As I do that, there is a life that is produced from that kind of decision-making. As superior as an apricot tree is to this seed, and it is greatly superior to the seed, so too is the quality and the beauty of life that is bound up in us by God that we will never know and never discover until we're willing to be buried in Him. Willing to say yes to him and no to myself in every issue in life. 
It's a great spiritual law for our lives revealed in a grain of wheat or in a, any seed. A higher life can only be reached by the decay of the lower. What is in us from God can only be revealed as the old man dies. Number four in verse 26, and I'll conclude quickly, don't relax. I can only come to know and understand Jesus if I follow him into a life of service. He talks about serving him in that verse. So much of what we will learn about Jesus in the Christian life will not only just come from knowing the Bible, but we will learn things about him and from him as we enter, follow him into a life of service. Jesus said of himself that he didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Have you ever noticed that one of the easiest and greatest ways to get to know other, another person is to join them in some shared task? To join them in some ministry, to join them in some, you know, work or shared purpose. A revelation occurs as we simply serve together. I don't know that much about women in this regard, in any regard, but I'm talking about this regard. But I know from experience that this is true of men. Most men that I know would be very uncomfortable if you were just to walk up to them and say, I'd like to get to know you better. Maybe we could set up some time and we could just sit down and you could tell me all about yourself. Somebody wake me up, please. Somebody wake me up. I'm having the most terrible nightmare. You put the average guy in a living room sofa, have someone walk in and say, let's talk, I'd like to get to know you and understand you better. That guy is going to really start to squirm and look for the nearest exit. Some of us are not really good interacting with another man before a relationship has been developed. And sometimes a develop, relationship developing with another person so you can head into deeper things. For men, it involves tossing a football around, throwing a baseball around, shooting some hoops. When you're shooting hoops and you're talking about something then it goes silent, nobody's uncomfortable. You're shooting hoops. If you've got two chairs pulled up and you're staring at each other, silence gets pretty uncomfortable. But you're shooting hoops. You're doing a manly thing. I'm not saying women can't shoot hoops. Look at, look at what this culture's done to me. I've got to explain every single thing of this. Most guys I know are doers. And they'll open up to someone who joins them in their doing. Relationship develops as we just simply spend time together engaged in the same activity. And that's why one of the best ways to develop relationships in a church is to begin to serve. Begin to serve in the children's ministry. Begin to serve in the parking lot ministry, whatever it might be. And by virtue of service, I start to establish a relationship with those people. But there's no great weight that's put on it on the front end while we're getting to know one another. Comfortable relationship just grows naturally as, as we do it. And what is true of many men, I think, is true of many women also. If you, you, you know, if, if you don't know one another very well, it can sometimes be really hard just to sit again and just talk right across a chair from one another. But if you go to somebody's house and you say, hey, listen, I'd like you to teach me how to do an apple pie. And so they pull out the thing and start doing the apple pie. I'm pulling all the stereotypes now. But you pull out the apple pie and start to do and you're chit-chatting and everything. Now you've got an apple pie in common to talk about the next time you run into in church. The pretty soon you're talking about this and talking about this and talking about this and then pretty soon the relationship is deepening and it's developing and then it's off and running. A lot happens by serving with one another. One of the greatest ways to get to know Jesus is by joining him in Christian service. 
by finding my place in Jesus' work of saving people and then helping them to become mature followers uh, of him. As I do that, a spiritual conversation begins with him. And he reveals a lot in that conversation. When I was a new Christian, I used to do a lot of street witnessing. And as I'd go out on the streets and I would share the Lord with people and those different kinds of things, and each night I'd return home and I would just think through the events of the night with the Lord. And say, Kyle, listen, Damien, I, I like what you did there. That went pretty good. Sure did. That didn't go so good, did it? No, it didn't, did it? That stupid idiot. I, could, I didn't understand. I, I thought they were dumb too, Jesus. Well, let me talk to you about, about that a little bit and tell you how I see that. And, and you process all, the, all those things. That wouldn't happen otherwise. And it's the same thing with a Bible study. I never do a Bible study. I never come to an end of a Sunday except there's time spent and say, Lord, talk this over with me. Where did I hit it? Where did I miss it? Where did I represent you well? Where didn't I represent you well? And it's a real conversation that he and I have. It's one that we have in our, our service to him. Christian service forces us to live close to him and to be in a constant conversation with him, a conversation he loves to be involved in. So Jesus is telling us that no one who disregards Christian service and does not join him in working for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world will ever know him deeply. And I believe it. If you were to take away everything that I have learned from him, and about him in the course of Christian service, you would strip away a huge part of my life. An awful lot happens in the realm of Christian service. Putting our knowledge into action. And then finally, verse 26, I can only come to know Jesus deeply by following him. And the word follow there, as he talks about it, it means to accompany him, to walk with him. And this speaks of maintaining a close personal relationship with him as a Christian. I think that the single greatest thing that we can do in this vein is to spend daily time with him, devotional time each morning to start the day. Because as we read the Bible and as we pray to start the day, the conversation has begun now. A conversation that we will then stay engaged in all the way through the day until our final waking moment. The daily bread is a great resource for that out on the literature racks in the fellowship hall to just grab one and read the passages that it speaks about reading on the date that's there. Read the devotional that's there. And it gets us rolling in this communion with him, a, a uh, connectedness, a currentness with him on a daily basis. It's so important that we never, ever grow accepting of a Christian life that doesn't include a daily devotional life. Because ultimately it will become the single most important and sweetest part of our relationship with the Lord. And everything else flows out of it. Notice in verse 26, the reward of this kind of life. Jesus said, if anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. And he will honor this kind of life in this life. As, as we, it, 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 it's our part to live our Christian life in this way, and then it's God's part to make our lives into something that glorifies Him. And He'll do that in this life. And He will honor us then in the life to come. Whatever sacrifice we have to make in order to live this kind of life, we rest in the knowledge that one day in heaven it will be publicly commended by God the Father. Paul said this, I fought the good fight immediately before his death. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. The desire to see, to understand, to know Jesus is the greatest desire 
that any human being can possess. And no one who possesses that desire sincerely in their heart will ever be turned away by Jesus. Instead, if we will bring that desire to Him, He will be faithful to lead us into the greatest life a person can possibly live on this side of heaven and then all of the glory on the other side of this life. The only way I can truly and deeply come to know and understand Jesus is by understanding the implications of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then number two, by making him my personal savior, being born again. Number three, by following him into a life of complete obedience to the Father, whatever the cost. And number four, by joining him in a life of service. And number five, by walking close to him day by day. At this point, there are words on a page and there are words in my noggin. And even in my heart. But all of this unfolds as we leave this place today and launch out into what Jesus has revealed to us here. And then all of it we will discover to be true. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your desire to reveal yourself to us. Not in some surfacy way or some marginal way, but deeply and richly and in a way that you know that we have need of in the very fallenness of this world. And I just pray for myself and I pray and we pray for one another in this room Lord, that those five great revelations that you spoke of in answer to that question, that you would continue to work in each one of our lives until each of them characterizes our lives. We want to know you and understand you as well as we can. This side of glory, Lord, continue to walk us out into it. And we ask these things in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.